All right. Long Gospel, labeled 52, part 52, but we took two uh, sessions dealing with uh, law, gospel, and uh, baptism. So we're going to do this. Does anybody remember which thesis we're on? We're on thesis number nine. And the reason we ended up with baptism is because in the middle of this thesis, like one, two, three, four, five pages in, takes this weird detour and starts talking about basically the Lutheran teaching on baptism, which they try to make an argument that somehow it's, you know, gospel oriented because it's all the work of God. And we talked about all of the issues. So when we talk about law and gospel and we bring in baptism, does everybody remember all the possible issues related to the subject once we bring in baptism to the discussion of law and gospel? Does everybody remember the possible issues? Well, yes. I mean, there's. Remember, depending on how you look. I mean, even no matter how you look at it, everyone ends up in the same problem. Okay, uh, Lutherans, say Catholics, Greek Orthodox, lots of others who hold to uh, infant baptism being a sacrament. A sacrament is what? The means of grace, visible means of grace, right? Something that imparts grace. So. On one hand, it sounds very gospel-oriented, does it not? Because you take a baby who's eight days old, can that baby do anything? No. You sprinkle water, and guess what happens? Original sin washed away, regeneration, basically salvation. Correct? That sounds very gospel-oriented. That sounds wonderful. That sounds great. But what does everyone who baptizes babies who believe it's regenerative, what do they all know can happen? Well, they all know that that baby can grow up and do what? have nothing to do with God, be an atheist, agnostic, maybe even end up in a different religion. So they got to be able to do what? they got to explain that, yes? they got to explain it. And so what's the only solution they can come up with? They lost their salvation. Well, if they lost their salvation, then what happens to law and gospel? It's no longer a gospel-oriented thing. It now becomes a law-based thing. And then what, what's the basis of your salvation? What God did for you in your baptism? No, now what you did or didn't do. So, that, so it's this weird, like, so then they try to say, well, it gives you salvation, but then you've got to take responsibility for it. But if, I, if I've been given salvation, how can I take responsibility for something that was just given to me, right? If I was given to me, my sins were washed away and, I was in, and God's righteous, or Christ's righteousness was imputed to my account, then what do I have to do? And the minute I have to do, it's no longer gospel, it is law. So that's a major, a major issue with it, right? So, and we talked about a lot of other uh, factors, but just, I want you to just realize that one, it sounds gospel-oriented, but once it comes over and you take it to its logical conclusion, it no longer is gospel, it becomes law-based, and it all falls apart, all right? So that's what I, that's what I wanted us to really consider and, and to think about. Now, we'll be, we're going to still be talking about baptism in the next hour, because remember, we're now, the Bible study exercise led us to baptism, law and gospel led us to baptism, Someone who did a word study for the Bible study exercise decided to do it on baptism. And then I had that weird conversation where I kind of got, you know, ambushed. 
on ba- so baptism keeps showing up everywhere. So we're doing that series on uh, the early the early church and baptism. We'll do that in the next hour. So we're not going to spend more time with it here, but I wanted to at least address it in connection to these very important concepts. All right. So we've looked at all of that. So we really just kind of have to finish up this thesis. But let's just remind ourselves what this thesis said. Does anybody remember what this thesis said? That the word of God is not rightly divided. When what happens? When sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not to, we'll just say to the gospel, right? But what are they directed to? Their own prayer and wrestlings with God in order that they may win their way into a state of grace. In other words, when they are told to keep on praying and struggling until they feel that God has received them into grace. We can, re- we can reword that and simply put this. When a person is overcome with guilt and overcome with knowledge of their sin, what should they be directed to? The gospel. Right? When a person is aware of their guilt and they're overcome by their guilt and their sin, what should they be directed to? I want to make sure everyone has this down. The gospel, okay? And how does this, uh, how does, how does this manifest itself in, in a non-Catholic, non-Lutheran, just Protestant, evangelical, Baptist kind of church? How do, what do we tend to do when someone has been found in sin, they're struggling with sin, they're guilty? What do we tend to do? What do we tend to direct them to? We give them a list of things to do, right? Okay, hey, you got to do this, and then you need this, and you need an accountability partner, and then you need this, and then you may need counseling, and then you need this, and, the, and then all these things. Because what is our ultimate goal sometimes within the Protestant evangelical world? We've talked about this now about 9,000 times in these 52 parts. Behavioral modification we want the behavior to change. We want the behavior to change. We want the behavior to change. And why is behavior such a focus in the evangelical Protestant church? Because we say that what proves one's salvation is one's actions. So why do we have to be, change the behavior? The behavior doesn't change. What does that prove? They're not saved. So it becomes all, it just becomes a never ending circle of what? Law, 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 law. It becomes a never-ending circle of law. And, it, and, it's, it, and so it's hard to get our, our... Because even for us, even if we've been studying this, come on, you've got you to feel, I think we can all acknowledge, here's someone who's caught in sin, they feel really bad for it, and it's hard for us to just want to give them the gospel, right? We want, we want, them, to not, we want them to feel worse than they already feel. We want them humiliated more than they're already humiliated. And then we want to ensure that they will do what? Either go away or that they will never do it again. Somehow thinking that we've, we've won some great victory because if they never commit that sin again, then I guess we think we've done something. But even if they stop committing that sin, what is the one thing we know? They're still committing sin. <laughs> okay, that's the thing. They're still committing sin. So this one, th- this is just a, v- this is a very important thesis. And I just want to make sure that we ha- at least have the basic thing is down. All right. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, okay. And th- I, I want to go back to Luther here. All right. Because I think this is important. We'll go back to what Luther said. This is important. Not necessarily a direct quote, but more kind of his philosophy. Luther is right 
and advising men not to inquire at all about the quality and sufficiency of their contrition. Luther says, don't sit there and try to figure out if you have enough contrition, it's the right kind of contrition. Don't do that. Why do you think Luther would tell people not to look to that? Yeah, well, because, look, now we're all familiar with this, right? I mean, come on, everyone in this room has probably said it. Someone gets caught in sin, they feel bad, and what do we say? Come on, they're not sorry. They just feel bad that they got caught. If David would have been around, if we would have been around at the time of David, what would we have said? Like, come on, David. You just upset that you got caught. You, Nathan called you out. Now you're sorry. Yeah, and now you want to go write scripture. Give me a break. You shouldn't be doing anything. Come on. That's all. Peter, what we said, oh yeah, you feel bad that you denied Jesus. You just felt bad that you got called out. You shouldn't be preaching at Pentecost. You deny, I mean, he went from denying Jesus three times to preaching in a very short period. Wait, wait a minute, like how dare he preach? Someone else should be preaching. Someone who did. Why is Peter preaching this sermon? There were other disciples who didn't deny him. We would, have, we would have just dismissed this sermon and just, we would have post clips on it on, you know, Twitter, TikTok, and just make fun of him. That's what the, good, the church would have done, correct? He goes, uh, this is what Luther says, for any person to build his hope on the sufficiency or quality of his contrition is building it on sand. On a contrary, on the contrary, a person is to praise God for the absolution he has received that makes his uh, contrition salutary. The right procedure is not to base the validity of absolution on our own contrition, but to make our contrition rest on our absolution. In other words, what we should focus on is the forgiveness we have in Christ, not on how sorry we feel. Now, I know we all want people to feel truly, truly sorry, and I know we question everyone, but you can never... Listen, first of all, it's not for us to question the validity of someone's sorry. Because we can't know, right? We may... Look, some people's external emotions doesn't always convey what's going on internally. Agreed? Some people wear their emotions where? On their sleeve. Right? And you know. You know. There's no question you know. And other people, kind of like, what's wrong with you? Right? What's wrong with you? Why, why, why are you not bothered? Why are you not upset? Right? Nobody can read my emotions at all. Right? Because they're all so hidden. And I'm joking, obviously. Okay? But some people that are that way. Right? So you can't, first of all, you, we should never try to judge anyone else's contrition. That's number one. And number two, we got to make sure that we don't try to determine, well, was I sorry enough? Did I, did I repent enough? Did I feel bad enough? That's just, man, that's a foolish endeavor. And so I, I'm glad that Luther mentions this, all right? Luther insists on faith and the declaration of Christ. Your sins are forgiven you. That's what we focus on. Our focus is on the forgiveness we have in Christ, all right? Uh, To disbelieve this statement. In 
other words, Luther says, if you don't believe that your sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done, you're making Christ a liar. All right? Does that make sense? All right, okay. Um, Then I'm going to skip down a little bit. The last part of the thesis tells us in particular that the word of God is not rightly divided when sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed to their own prayers and wrestlings with God in order that they may win their way into a state of grace. In other words, when they are told to keep on praying and struggling until they feel that God has received them into grace. There are people who regard themselves as good Christians, although, well, then, okay, this is going to go in a completely different direction. Just... Let's just focus on that. I don't want to get too more. Uh, I don't want us. I don't want us to end up on another sidetrack because we'll never finish this thesis. All right? Um, because yeah, that would be crazy. Um, let's do this because they're going to get into a whole discussion about. Uh, yeah, that'll lead us. We don't want to go there. All right. Uh, let's do this. Um, uh, we're going to look at a couple of scriptures here. They, they look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, really quick. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Let's do that. I'm going to skip around a little bit. This thesis, uh, they do a lot of stuff in this one. We, we, we could spend probably the rest of 2023 on this thesis alone, but we're, we're not going to. What does Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says? All right, we are justified by faith, meaning not anything we do. And as a result of being justified by faith, what do we have? Peace. Uh, As they refer to this, this is objective peace established through the shedding of Christ's blood. Exists uh, um, According, the apostle must be speaking of peace that is since felt and experienced. So the idea here is that we have a peace because we have been justified by faith. That's where our peace comes from. That's where our peace is derived from. Our peace is not based off what? How we feel? How much sin we do or don't do? Or how sorry we are? Or not? That's where peace comes from. Does that make sense? All right, go to Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And I'm changing some of the things that they say here to fit up for what we need to. All right, uh, Romans fourteen seventeen. what does it say? Okay, well, the, it speaks of joy in Romans fourteen seventeen. does it not? Right, right, talks about the joy. They, this is how they describe it. The joy of which the apostle speaks is not worldly or carnal, uh, but spiritual joy. A person that has tasted all the other joys except the last then they, they, go, they want to go to this whole other concept, but we won't go there. But the point is, is we have joy and we have peace based off what Christ has done for us. 
That's the point they want, uh, they want to drive home. They want to add some other things here, but we, we're going to skip that, all right? Um, then they said, lastly, ask any person who has all the criteria of a true living Christian, whether he's experienced all these things of which he speaks, and he will answer in the affirmative. He will tell you that his heart is melting within him at every remembrance of the Savior's love. Again, he will also tell you that in spite of the fact that he knows he has obtained grace, he is frequently seized with fright and anguish at the sight of the law. Now that is, I, I, I like that acknowledgement as well. That even though we are saved, a believer will still at, be frequently seized with fright and anguish at the sight of the law. I want to drive that point home. Even as a Christian, we'll be seized with fright at the sight of the law. Why will we be constantly seized with fright at the sight of the law? Because what do we know about the law? We don't do it. We don't do it. We don't do it. It's, it's weird in the evangelical world. What, what are we supposed to... They, it's basically taught we are to do what when we see the law? Not only will we, we, not only will we obey, the idea in the evangelical world is that we can obey. And so when we fall short, we just feel bad, double down our efforts... And we can do it. They're going with the approach that, no, we may have joy, we may have peace, but we're frequently seized with fear because every time we see the law, we see something that we don't do and we see something, I want everyone to say this, that we can't do. We cannot do it. We cannot, I cannot drive that point home enough. I know it goes against every evangelical teaching, but I'm sorry, no matter how many sermons you listen to in the evangelical world, they play these games. I don't know if you listened to the five parts I did on Romans 7 this week while I lost my absolute mind, but they played this same garbage. They claim in Romans 7, where Paul says the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. That's not a saved man speaking. You know why it's not a saved person speaking? Because saved people can do the things we want to do and not do the things we don't want to do. That we can obey the law. And then after about 45 minutes of them saying the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life, guess what they ultimately throw in at about the 47, 50, 50 minute mark? Well, we're going to still sin. We're still going to struggle with sin. Either we can... Or we can't. And to say that we can, can demands what? If we say we can keep the law, what does that demand? We've gone through this a million times. Personal, perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. Internally and externally. If you're guilty at one point of the law... You're guilty of all of it. Nobody likes to hear that, right? Nobody likes to hear that, but you, you take the, t- if you've broken one point of the law, you're guilty of all, th- those law, those sins that you're like, well, I would never do that. You're guilty of it because you get, break one point, you're guilty of all of it. So it's bizarre how Christians don't understand this. So as a Christian, we see the law and it constantly strikes us with fear. Why does it strike us with fear? Because we know we don't do it. And what does God demand? Perfection. Remember, the, I'll just give you the one command. Be holy, 
Christians preach that, that we can do that. Anyone you know who believes they can do that, I'm sorry, they need counseling. Because they're insane. They can't. But we can in whom? In Christ. Because Christ has done it for us. Law and gospel are grievously commingled by those who assert that assurance of the forgiveness of sins requires praying, struggling, and wrestling until it finally a joy, a joyful feeling arises in the heart, indicating to the person in a mysterious way that the grace is now in the heart and now they can be of good cheer because he has forgiveness of sins. I will argue this way. Law and gospel are grievously commingled that when you are struggling with sin that you, you will continue not to have that joy until you overcome that sin. And when you start living a certain way, then you can have joy because now you have proof that you're saved. You're commingling law and gospel because once again, what's your assurance based off of? What you're doing. And not only, not only, not only is it based off what you're doing, it's based off a of deception. And what is that deception? You're focusing on what? Very specific things, ignoring... All the other ways that you are sinning. And I don't, I will never understand how Christians don't see this. Now, properly speaking, grace is never in man's, but in God's heart. That's a powerful statement. Grace is never in in our heart, but it's in God's heart. Now, what they mean by that is grace is something that is externally given to us. So that's kind of an interesting way of putting it, right? So I, I, we, we could have a long discussion there. Now, properly speak, it says, uh, first, a person must believe after that he may feel. Feeling proceeds from faith, not faith from feeling. That's kind of an interesting concept. If a person's faith proceeds from feeling, it is not a genuine faith, for faith requires a divine promise which to lay a hold of. Accordingly, we can be sure that faith of those who can say, I regard nothing in all the world except the precious gospel on that I build is of the right sort. Now, my feelings are this, is that feelings are just irregardless to the whole concept, right? Because sometimes you have faith and guess what? You may not have flowing from it, a feeling. Now, I do believe your faith should never be based on your feeling. And it would be great that right feeling would flow from faith, but feelings are just, they fluctuate. You can't trust them. What we, we have, everything about, think about this, everything about our salvation, if you think about it, is all what? Everything about our salvation is external to us. Yes? The righteousness, is it in or out or external to us? External, it's imputed, right? It's not infused. Right? Everything is outside of us. So the, my, my, my salvation, in a sense, is an external thing based off a work that Christ did 2,000 years ago that was perfect and that was complete. And then that's accredited to my account. Once we start getting feelings involved, well, that's, that's, that's usually not a good thing. Right? Agreed? All right? Uh, look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. I don't know, we're, we're kind of having to do a lot of skipping through this, but that's okay. 
I just don't want to get, I don't want to get bogged down into this one. Right? What does 1 John 3, 19 through 20 says? All right, now that's a very important verse, right? Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. Seemingly to imply what? That there could be a situation where our heart does what? Condemns us. But our heart condemning us does not prove what? That we're condemned. Everybody understand that? Your heart is not a good indication of whether you're It's not a good indication of what? Salvation. And it's not a good indication of what? Condemnation. Well, the heart's the center of, you know, and the Bible uses it in a lot of different ways, but it's not the physical heart, obviously, so it's the center of our emotions, feelings, kind of our our person. Okay? So so I want to make sure we understand this. Our heart does not give us assurance of what two things? Our salvation or condemnation? Why not? You can't trust our heart, right? Can't trust our heart. Because our salvation has to be found where? In something more objective. And where, where is the objective thing that we look to? To the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. That's what we have to look to. They say this. A Christian may feel the accusation of his own heart. And when trying to quiet his heart, he may hear a voice telling him that he is damned, that he has no forgiveness of his sins and no grace. It is not a, it is not a child of God and cannot, that they are not a child of God and cannot hope for eternal life. To such a person, the apostle says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. That is to say, our heart is indeed a judge, yet only a subordinate one. A higher judge, namely God, is above our heart. I can say to my troubled heart, be still, my heart, keep silence, my conscience. I have appealed to a higher court and inquired of God, the supreme judge, whether I am rid of my sins. From the higher court, which can always reverse the verdict of a lower court, I have obtained a verdict that my sins are forgiven for I cling to the word of God. A person who by the grace of God is enabled to believe there is a bless, this is a blessed person. Though all the devils in hell roar at him, you are lost. He can answer them, it is not so. I am not lost, but redeemed forever." Here I have the written evidence of God's word, and in due time, the feelings of grace will return. And the very moment when a Christian imagines that he is void of all feeling, cold, dead, and miserable, and a lost creature to whom the word of God tastes like rotten wood, who does not relish absolution, and has not the witness of the Holy Spirit in him, and all is over with him, just in a moment a great joy may suddenly enter his heart, God will not leave him in that pit of despair. Bottom line is, what do we look to? The finished work. The finished, outside of us, outside of us, outside of us, outside of us. And I think this is important because sometimes when people, 
get into that kind of pit where they feel like I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. What is the typical evangelical response to that person? Well, tell them to look to what they do. It's all, everything the evangelical world is tells you to look at what you do. Look at what you do. Look at what you do. Do you love reading your Bible? Do you love God? Do you love others? It's going to be, you can call it law, but it's looking at what we do. What are they telling you to look to? That whole beautiful illustration they gave, we look to the higher court. We look to what God has declared about us. And what has God declared about anyone who has believed? You're forgiven, and you're right, and you're com- completely righteous. Do you see that? The, you see how there's a practical implication to this. We always want people to look to their works. Looking to your works, if you're even halfway honest with yourself, looking to your works will lead you where? Should to a greater pit of despair. It should, right? I mean, because your works are never good enough, and, and, and the fact that people. Think that we should look to our works is, well, it, it's, there's so many problems. All right. There's so many problems. All right. Um, let's see. There is. Uh, do I want to go any more here? I don't think I want to go any more here. Okay, here we go. Uh, they, they say that they call them. Uh, we'll call them the different groups all have this grievous error in common. That they do not rely solely on Christ and his word, but chiefly on something that takes place in themselves. So they condemn all the groups. Now this is, this book goes so far to basically say the only church that right is Lutheran, but okay. But all the other groups are wrong because they basically do what? They do not rely on Christ, but they look at something in themselves. And this is, a, this is a major problem within the Protestant world. Where do you look? In yourself. Where do you look to? Your works. Your actions. And then you convince yourself that your works and your actions proves you're saved because you think you've reached a certain level of righteousness. And all I have to do to destroy that is say, but God demands what kind of righteousness? Perfect. So therefore, no matter how great you think you are, you're not good enough. And that's where the problems begin. As a rule, they imagine that all is well with them because they have turned from their former ways, as if that were a guarantee of reaching heaven. No, we're not to look back to our conversion for assurance, but we must look to our Savior again and again, every day, as though we have never been converted. That's a powerful statement. What do they say not to look to? They give you two things not to look to. What should you not look to? You should not look to your past supposed change in your life. And you should not look to some possible conversion of the past. What do you look to? The finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. And they said to look to it as what? As if you've never been converted. Why do you think they would say that? Okay, yeah, because when you look to some kind of conversion, you're looking to possibly, well, I believed, right? Just look to what Christ did. 
That's what they want you to do. And we have to look to that every single day. Right? My former conversion will be of no benefit to me if I become secure. I must return to the mercy seat every day. Otherwise, I shall make my former conversion my savior by relying on it. That would be awful, for in the last analysis, it would mean that I make myself my own savior. That's pretty powerful stuff, is it not? Don't look to a past decision. Don't look to a past action. Don't look to a past change. Look to the present reality that I'm saved because of what Christ has done because of his imputed righteousness. That's what we have to point ourselves to, and that's what we have to point other people to. We don't point people to what? We don't look to feelings. We don't look to actions. We don't look to decisions. I stress decision because decisionism, right? Everybody know decisionism, yes? Where you make a decision for Jesus, right? And then how do I know I'm saved? Well, look in the front of your Bible. Did you write down the date and the time that you made that decision? If you didn't, if you don't have that down, let's get it down tonight, right? So come up here and make that decision. We'll write it down. And then you'll hold on to that decision for the rest of your life. But they're, what they're claiming is you do what? Who, who becomes the savior in that? You become your own savior. Well, we don't save ourselves. Who saves us? Christ, based off what? What he's done. What he's done. What he's done. So where do we point people to? The finished work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus. That's what we point to. And your feelings do, what does your feelings have to do with that? Nothing. Right? You may have absolutely, and this is not the best illustration, but it can work. You may have absolutely no feeling at all for the fact that at a point in history, there were some men inside an abandoned mission in San Antonio, Texas, fighting a gigantic army from Mexico, and they all, they all died, and the, the independence of Texas was signed while they were still inside that abandoned mission known as the Alamo. You may not have any feelings towards that, right? Right? You may, you may drive by the Alamo in San Antonio and go, like, who cares? Who cares? Your feelings about it doesn't change the, the fact of it. Doesn't change the fact of it in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't change anything. Well, no matter what you feel about it, it happened, right? I mean, the Alamo's still there, right? You, uh, they, still, they still died there. Right? And, and you're, just with this, your feelings about what Christ did is irregardless how you feel about it, right? He died to save sinners. If I place my faith in him, do I always feel that? No, not always. My feelings can fluctuate. Sometimes what do I feel? I feel more lost than I feel saved based off my, that my heart condemns me, but I look to a higher court than my own conscience and to my own feelings. And what else do I look to? What's a higher court than your own actions? His actions are a higher court than your actions. And it blows my mind that people would want to argue with me and say, we must look to ourselves. Well, congratulations, because you think that Christ's work is insufficient and your work is sufficient. Now, if you say that to them, they would get very mad at you but that's what they're arguing. 
There has to be a change. Okay, well, if there has to be a change, I guess you think your change has been sufficient enough to save you. Well, no, 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 no. My change doesn't save me. Well, then why are you looking to it? You see that circular reasoning and how it all unravels. Okay, any questions about that one? I know we had to skip a lot there, but um, just, just trust me. If, we re- if I read every paragraph in this one, we would, be, we would go down a long rabbit hole. And what makes it difficult is that last section that we read, a lot of it is still dealing with their, the, the Lutheran teaching on absolution, so I had to kind of change it up a lot, but there we go. All right, so that brings us to which thesis? Thesis number 10. Can you look how close we are to being done? Yeah, yeah. A hundred years away. Okay, all right. Thesis number 10. All right. I'm going to read it from the book. Has everybody got the the rewritten version of Thesis 10 down? Okay, well, hopefully you've got it down. If not, well... Okay, Stacy has it. Okay, all right, so here we go. I'm going to read it from the book, and then we can rewrite the rewritten. We can then go over the rewritten version, all right? Remember, we changed a lot of these. Everybody remember? All right, all right, here we go. Thesis number 10. The Word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere inert acceptance of truths even while a person is living in mortal sins, renders that person righteousness in the sight of God and saves him, as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. Whoo, that's a mouthful. All right, how did we rewrite it? Okay, now, they had, they're, they're going to have a kind of a, maybe a counterpoint to that, but that's what I wanted to focus on. The Word of God is not rightly divided when we describe faith as what? Say it again, stay. Involving obedience. Or the thing that produces righteousness in us. Everybody got that, right? Everybody understand that? Yes, I'm not hearing any yeses. All right, let's go. Let's, okay, let's do that again. With the word of God, because everybody's like looking at me like you have no clue what we're talking about after 52 hours now on this, all right? Faith. The word of God is not rightly divided when we describe faith as that which does what two things, Stacey? Say them again. Involves obedience. Or produces righteousness in us. Does everybody understand that? Faith, what are we doing by faith? Believing in a righteousness that is external to us, and by that faith it is... And by faith it is... Imputed to us, not... Infused in us, okay? I mean... I, I, I need an overhead projector or something. Okay, so let's do this again. Faith, we believe in the finished work of Christ. And by that faith, righteousness is imputed. It is not infused. 
Right? Everybody, we've got to have this down. We've got to have this down. Okay? All right. Here we go. Let's see how they, they, they work. They, they handle this. All right? I think it may get a little confusing. Well, that part right there is not confusing. We've only covered it a million times. But they, this may get confusing. Here we go. How, how, how much time do I have? All right. We're going to see how far we can get. Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful in good works. Oh, boy. All right. Do we have a problem here, ladies and gentlemen? Do we have a problem? All right. This is the... And it'll be interesting to see where they go with this, but let's... All right. As for 2,000 years, the church has constantly struggled with this idea that somehow our salvation must produce what? A change. It's just been, it's built into our brain. It must, it must, it must, it must, it must. Now, what are the, what are, and, I, and, and look, some of these, we're just saying the same thing over and over and over, so some of these y'all should just have down by now. But what is, the, what, is, what is the difficulty with maintaining the concept that faith must produce a change? What is the p- problem with this thinking, even though it's like in the DNA of Christianity? What is the problems with this? Well, the first issue is how, how do we measure said change? Remember, I, I keep going to this over and over and over and over. How do we, t- what is the typical go-to? How do we, how do we measure change? We, we, mod- we, we focus on external behavior based off some artificial list, right? Okay, Right? And, and, and what we do is, what, do we, what kind of sins do we put in, on this list? We put big ones that are clearly external, right? And then we base that change on that. For example, okay, well, I don't, I don't sell drugs. I'm not doing drugs. I haven't killed anyone, right? We, we pick some bigger things, right? And then we're like, well, I thank God that I'm not like all these other people. Therefore, there's been enough change. So look at me. So first of all, it's kind of a, a rigged system in how we measure the change. Well, what is the problem is, you can measure, what, 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 how should we measure change? If we're going to do this even anywhere close to biblical, how should we measure change? Like, is God's standard? What's God's standard? Perfection. So, no matter how much change one supposedly sees, what do we know about said change? It doesn't meet that the demand, right? The demand is perfection. No matter how much change we got, it's always going to do what? Fail, 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 fail. So what we have to do is try to modify, go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not about perfection. This is what it's always said to me. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Well, how do you even measure direction if you never get to perfection so you're in a perpetual state of what? Failure. So how do I measure, how do I measure change based on a perpetual state of failure? 
Well, I don't fail as much. I fail less. It's like it's it's so subjective. So I so we mean, but but even Luther, nobody can stay away from it. Luther can't. Nobody can. They're like, if you believe, something must happen. Something must happen. Something must happen. Well, immediately it gets becomes becomes dangerous because now faith becomes. Not based off an imputed righteousness, but an infused righteousness, which is what we supposedly try to stay away from. So let's see what what they say here, all right? Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces a love spontaneously and, and is fruitful in good works. Now listen, that does not mean that faith saves on account of the love which springs from it but that faith which the Holy Spirit creates and which cannot but do good works uh, justifies because it clings to the gracious gracious promises of Christ and because it lays holds of Christ. So they try to make a distinction here, which I do like. Luther says faith should do this, but what do we not look to for the basis of our salvation? Whether it's doing it or whether it's present, we don't look to that. What do we look to? The work of Christ. So I do like the fact that Luther tries to make somewhat of a distinction here. I think we all wish and hope that our faith would do what? Produce all of this wonderful stuff. Right? So if you want to say faith should, I'll be like, congratulations, fine, it should. But what should you not tell me to do? Look to it. To prove it, because my proof of my salvation is not that, it's in the finished work of Christ. That's a, that's a very subtle distinction, but it's one that of great significance. Does that make some sense? Okay, I hope so. All right. It is active in good works because it is genuine faith. The believers need not at all be exhorted to do good works. His faith does them automatically. Again, I'm not... Mm, see? The believer engages in good works, not from a sense of duty, and return for the forgiveness of his sins, but chiefly because he cannot help doing them. It is altogether impossible that genuine faith should not break forth from the believer's heart in a work of love. Well, that sounds great, but once again, that's very subjective, is it not? It's very subjective because, I don't know, do, 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 you, do good works just flow out of you naturally because you've believed? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, because over and over and over we do that which is opposite to what we believe. I mean, I don't know about you, at least for me, opposite, Yes. I mean, just think about it. They, okay, let's take, let's take the concept of morality and doing good, right? We can call it good works or morality, right? Okay, now take any person, take almost just, just the average person. Can we agree that certain moral choices, moral decisions, and moral desires, when you're 16, are usually very different than when you're 54? Does that have anything to do with salvation? Right? Nothing. 
What, what changes? Well, hormonal changes in your body, right? Because sometimes the parents are like, I don't know what the problem is. Don't you remember when you were 16? Right? Okay? Because sometimes we're just like, I don't know what their problem is. They're 16! Okay, no, no amens from anybody. I thought at least the teenagers would be like, yeah, listen to him, listen to him, right? Okay, that, there's, right, there's a, something's happening, right? And it's different when you're tw- 16 to 25. Sometimes between 20 and 25, it's even worse. Why? 16, you had people telling you what to do. Sometimes 20, 25, now you're free from that. And now you can kind of do the things you wanted to do that you weren't allowed to do. Because now you have freedom. And you may have your own, uh, you have a lot of other things going, going for it. But a lot's happening. Now, all of a sudden, what, what's, what's sometimes a dramatic change that happens, to say, between 16 and, say, 26, 27? Okay, you get married? Oh, you have kids. All of a sudden, now, that morality that didn't matter when you're 16, now it matters because you're now going to place it on your children. Right? And then what happens by the time you get around 35, 40? Okay. Well, a lot of times you kind of start, well, you know, maybe some of those rules weren't so bad. Maybe those were, you know, maybe, maybe nothing good happens after midnight. I never understood that, but okay. Maybe, maybe, all of a sudden, maybe, maybe, maybe your, your opinions kind of start changing based off what? A lot of it's just age, experience. And so I want you to understand there's a morality change. Forget Christianity. And a lot of people will attribute that very natural change in morality based off some supposed supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, just be quiet. You have a different view because you're 35. Go back to when you were 16 and a Christian. No, no, no amens? Right? It's easy when you're 62. It's easy when you're 70 going, I just don't understand. I don't have any desire to do that or that. You're 70! Don't act like you're, oh, that person is such a godly... They're 75 in a rest home. What are they going to do? Yeah, they're really tempted, I bet. Amen? So sometimes I get sick of the way Christians work because they talk a big game after they're now married or, and like they take away that and see where you are. So a lot of times the whole morality thing drives me crazy because we just play this weird little game based on the stage of life we're in. But you I mean, come on, you know that when you're placed in certain situations, you're, I don't feel like that good works just naturally flow from us. You know what naturally flows from us? Selfishness, a love of pleasure more than a love of God, a love of self, more than a love of God, a love of self, more than a love of others, a seeking to use others for one's own Benefit? I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. 
So I get so sick of this weird game Christians play where we talk a big game about morality. Yeah, you, you talk a big game about morality when you're placed in the best situation where hopefully some of those moral issues aren't an issue. But even in those people who think they have it all together, you never know what's going on behind the scenes. And sometimes behind the scenes, things are so good. Amen? So I'm not a fan of this idea that, oh, well, you know, it's going to do this, it's going to do that. No, I, I, no I, have, I have major problems. I have major problems here. Right? And I, I completely disagree that the believer does not need to be exhorted to good works. Give me a break. A believer doesn't need to be exhorted to good works? <laughs> okay. Mary says she does. I know I do. Right? We have to constantly be told, this is what God calls you to do. I mean, I would say, I, to me, Scripture proves we have to be exhorted unto good works. A good portion of the New Testament is written to believers exhorting them <laughs> to good works, right? I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? Hey, you don't need to be exhorted to good works. You're just going to naturally do them. Man, I, you know how easy it would be to be a pastor if, if everybody was just, I didn't have to do anything. Hey, so I, I don't even need to tell you, did you study? Did you read? Did you? No, because y'all just going to come in. I did it all. Wouldn't it be great to be a parent of kids who you didn't have to exonerate to good works because they're saved and they just naturally do them? Oh, I guess all your, I guess you're like, what are you talking about? That was how my kids live. Okay, most parents know that that's, no, it doesn't work that way. So I, I'm having, I have a, I completely dis, once again, we, it, it, we have this brokenness in us that we just want to believe because we're saved. We, somehow, something just works inside of us that makes us better than everyone else. Do you realize the claim that if you're a Christian, I don't have to exonerate you to good works because good works will just naturally flow would, would be, mean what? We're better than everyone else. Did Paul have to exonerate the, the people at Corinth? Exhort? Yeah, exhort. Yes. Why? Were they doing just naturally what was good? They were naturally doing what was horrible. All right? Uh, look at Galatians 5, 6. You know where they're going in Galatians 5, 6, right? Everybody knows that where they're going. Nobody wants to say. Okay, we're going to go to Galatians 5. They want us to look at 6. Okay, Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither certain... Are they sure they want 5, 6? Am I reading correctly? That's what they want us. Okay, yeah, I guess that's where they want us to go. All right, okay, I see it now. All right, Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Now, this is what they want us to take from this. This is what they want us to take. Listen carefully. The, the ineffectiveness of a faith that fails to work by love is not due to a lack of love, but to the fact that it is not real. 
if the faith is not real. Honest faith, uh, and that is not an honest faith. Love must not be added to faith, but grow out of it. A fruitful tree does not produce fruit by somebody's order, but because while there is vitality in it, it is not dried up. It must produce fruit spontaneously. Faith is such a tree, it proves its vitality by bearing fruit. What have they just now walked right back into? Once again, what proves your good works? Even though they made that little claim that, no, 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 we don't look to this to prove it, what did they just say? That's what's going to prove it. We can't get away. Isn't it amazing that even when we write a book to try to get away from it, we walk right back into it? Now, I wish it was true. Don't you wish it was true? You have faith, and then you just sit back, and guess what just happens? All this natural stuff just, just starts coming. Boom, boom, boom. You don't have to do anything. But here's what I know. No matter, no matter how much faith you have, what continues to come out of you? Sin. Why does sin continue to come out of you? Because faith does not remove what? I want everyone to get this down. We'll stop, we'll stop right here if everyone can get this right. Faith does not remove what? The sinful nature. Faith does not remove the sinful nature. What does faith do? It accepts and acknowledges a righteousness that is where? Outside of us. And where does that righteousness remain? Outside of us. That righteousness is what? Imputed to us. So we have, an impu- we have faith in an imputed righteousness, but what is still inside of us? Sin. So even though we have faith, what should be the th- thing to expect in your life and my life? Sin. Why should I expect sin in your life and my life? Because faith does not remove the sinful nature. 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 If you get anything down, get that down. So therefore, we can't say that faith is naturally going to just produce all of this good stuff because we still have a sinful nature. Now you may say faith starts trying to work in, even if you try to say faith starts trying to work in us or that this good should come from our faith, it's still going to always be tainted and corrupted by what? The sinful nature, because what is inside of us? A sinful nature. So then what can we, what's our hope? What faith grabbed onto, which is an, an external righteousness. All right, we'll have to stop there. All right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very difficult concepts, but I pray that we'll continue to think these through. And try to understand the practical implications of each. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.